If you would, open your Bibles to uh, the book of Psalms. As John highlighted, we'll be continuing in our G-series uh, this morning. Uh, so as you, as you turn there, uh, that's page 485 of the Bibles we provided for you there. Uh, but as you turn there, I want you to think about your life for just a moment. And I think we would all agree that our lives are marked by many great pursuits. If we were to survey one another's lives, I think we would, we would see a variety of very noble and very valuable pursuits that fill our lives. Some of you are pursuing an education at some of the, the top schools in the world here in greater Boston. Some of you are pursuing excellence in your vocational sphere of influence. Others may be really focused on pursuing joy in your relationships and life. What about you? What are you pursuing in your life? Perhaps it's a better living arrangement. Perhaps it's, it's better health. Maybe it's a better marriage or a bigger family. Maybe some of you are looking for greater security in life or deeper significance in your life. What is your greatest pursuit? Here's the deal with our pursuits. Oftentimes, these pursuits can tend to dominate us, right? So, so, so we take these good pursuits, and then all of a sudden, our, our thoughts are dominated by these pursuits. Our calendars are dominated by these pursuits. And what we find in the Bible is that God would affirm almost every pursuit that I mentioned there. He would affirm in some way, shape, or form. But what he tells us is that all of our pursuits in life are to serve and complement the greatest pursuit of our life, which is the pursuit of God himself. So we've been in this G series looking at God is great, God is glorious, and today we are going to think about how God is good. What I want us to see this morning is from Psalm 73 is that God is good and his nearness should be pursued as the greatest good in our lives. I want to read the first 15 verses of Psalm 73 and invite you to follow along. Uh, he starts in verse 1 and he says this, the thesis statement for this psalm. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean 
and wash my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I want us to see a couple of realities in these opening verses of Psalm 73, and that is simply this. God is good. Make no mistake about it. God is good, but it doesn't always seem to be the case. God is good, but it does not always seem like he is good. The psalm begins with this declaration. Okay, look back in verse one. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. The, the, the goodness of God is clearly the theme of this psalm. What Asaph wants us to do, he invites us to, to contemplate the goodness of God and then to come and experience his goodness. A.W. Tozer says, the goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. So God is essentially good. It's part of who he is. He, has in, he is inherently good. That's why Psalm 119, 68 says, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. And the order is very important there. Okay, don't miss this. He says, you are good and you do good. The reason that everything God does is good is because he is good. And everything that, that God does, his goodness is following behind it. So this helps us understand the relationships between the goodness of God and the blessing of God. We've been thinking a lot about blessing, right? Galatians 3, Psalm 115. And we said that a blessing is any gift from the hand of God that carries benevolent force, right? So it's to say that all the gifts that we receive in life are from the good hand of God that, that has benevolent force behind it. So think about this. God made the world and everything in it because he is good. God hears our prayer because he is good. God sent his son. Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, die a substitutionary death on our behalf that we might have life in him because he is good. God extends his, his mercy, his grace, his kindness to us because he is good. All of these attributes of God that we talk about and think about, his love, his mercy, his grace, his kindness, it all flows from his essential goodness. So that's the, the huge stuff, creation, God's care for us, the cross, salvation. But what about the smaller details of our lives? I mean, think about this, our friendships and our family our interest and our abilities. The reason we can enjoy both snow, we enjoy snow around here, right? We, the reason we can enjoy snow and a beautiful sunset is because God is good. That's the reason why. This is how Jesus' ministry was described. In Acts 10, 38, there's a simple statement about the, the life and the work of Christ, and it simply says this, he went about doing good. 
This is who God is. This is who Jesus is. Everything God does is good. And so Asaph declares God's goodness in verse 1, but his life experiences lead him to ask a very honest question. If God is so good, then why is our world so bad? And this is where he picks up in verse 2. Look back at what he says. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I mean, this is one of the reasons why so many people love the Psalms, because they are filled with raw emotions, very real prayers, honest questions from God's people. And so Asaph can look up and he can say, God, you are good. But he can look around at all the evil and all the suffering in the world and say, God, you are good, but why is this world so bad? It was the prosperity of the wicked that stole Asaph's attention away from trusting, resting in the goodness of God. To summarize verses 4 uh, through uh, 15, we could say this. this Asaph just, just kind of goes on a tirade. He says, just, just look at them. Look at the wicked. The arrogant prosper. They feel no pain. They're well fed. They never face adversity, even though they're so godless and immoral. They have proud hearts, violent hands, malicious and oppressive tongues. And then look back in verse 9. It's stunning. It says, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. In effect, it seems to be saying the wicked can strut around and say, God, you know what? Hey, I'm God. I have it all under control. I call the shots. I sit on top of the world. And it seems that the life for the wicked is just a breeze. It's so easy. They have everything that they could ever want and desire. And so Asaph is wrestling with this picture that he sees around him. Why do the wicked prosper? And it drives him to do two things. On the one hand, it drives him to, to a bit of despair and self-pity, right? He, he says, all the good that I've done, it seems like it was a joke. It seems like it was all in vain. But then not only that, it says that, that he began to envy the wicked, right? Envy the arrogant. And so on the one hand, we can, we can kind of come up with the self-pity when life isn't what we think it should be, especially for ourselves in relation to someone else. But then on the other hand, we can also cultivate this envy in our heart. Hey, they have that. Why don't I have that? They're not as good. They don't love God. Why don't I experience these things that they're experiencing in their life? And so this is why the Proverbs say, let not your heart envy sinners. Chapter 23, verse 17. And so if wisdom calls us not to envy sinners, even though we see the wicked prospering around us, then, then why is that? How can we uh, have such an attitude in our lives? And this is the answer, because God will ultimately bring judgment, and God will take care of his people. This is what we see in verses 16 through 22. Verse 16 and 17. But when I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. So let's, let's, let's marinate on this for just a moment, okay? Asaph, you say, well, what's his problem? 
Why is, why is he so down and, and wrestling with, with the prosperity of the wicked? Most people, I think, would answer, you know what, Tanner, it's because of his circumstances. He's living a good life. He's seeking to be righteous. He doesn't have all of these things in his life. But the wicked, they're over here. They're living a godless, immoral life, and yet they're flourishing. They have everything that they could ever want. And so surely it's his circumstances, right? Like this is, this is why he's uh, driven with self-pity and, and doubt and envy. But if you think it's his circumstances, you would be very, very wrong. Asaph's problem and our problem is not our circumstances, Please listen to me, okay? This, you're not going to turn on like CBS, NBC, and get this from, from talk show hosts and, and, and popular counselors and self-help books. You're not going to see it. You're going to hear, it's your circumstances. It's your circumstances. It's your circumstances. And God says it's not your circumstances. It's your vision. It's your vision. In other words, what we do is we are so prone to looking around us. We compare our lives with their lives. We compare our circumstances with their circumstances. And this constant comparison is a curse. It's a curse. We all do this. Women, think about, think, think about your life just for a moment. Okay, I'm going to just speak to the women in the church for a moment, okay? Women, I, I see you kind of do this, all right? I just, I understand. But, but when you, when sometimes when you get together, you walk in the room with other, other ladies, what do you do? You know what I'm saying? You look each other up and down. And why do you do that? Because you're comparing what they look like to what you look like. Men, what about us? I mean, I mean, we may not be so concerned about our image, and I mean, some of us are probably, but, but, but for us, what about us? It's, it's success. It's our income. It's accomplishment. And so at the end of the day, we're all pretty insecure in the room. And the reason we're insecure is that we're not finding our security in who God is. If we would find our security and our identity in who God is, rather than those around us, life would begin to be straightened out. This was Asaph's problem. This is our problem. Instead of looking around at our circumstances, God is calling us to look up, to look up at him. And this is what happens in verse 16. It's so good. I should read it again. But when I thought to how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. And by the way, if you live your life constantly comparing yourself to other, just be prepared. Verse 16 is for you, okay? Your life will wear you out. You're never going to win the battle of comparison because there's always, just, just let me be honest, okay? I'm your pastor. It's my job to be honest with you, okay? There is always someone that will be more beautiful than you, more intellectual than you, have a better income than you. So rather than being worn out by this wearisome task, it says in verse 17, I love this, until I went into the sanctuary of God, 
then I discerned their end. So do you see that? He goes back into the sanctuary of God, back into the presence of God. His eyes are recaptured by a vision of the greatness of God. And then everything begins to make sense again. Instead of looking around, we need to look Because when we look up, then God begins to sort it all out for us. Because in verses 18 through 20, it tells us what is going to happen to the wicked. It says, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So what, what... Asaph begins to see is this. He he sees a clear vision of God, and a clear vision of God would tell us that God is too holy, God is too perfect, God is too glorious to smirk at our sin and to not exact his judgment where his just judgment is due. And by the way, you, you may be living an immoral life, a wicked life. You may not have trusted in Christ as your Savior. And so you're just thinking, man, that judgment could be for me. And so let me go ahead and tell you, this is the beauty of the cross, is that God exacted his judgment and he placed his punishment and wrath on Jesus on the cross so that he absorbed God's wrath and judgment that was reserved for me and for you if you have trusted in him. So I pray that you have trusted in him so that you won't experience the judgment of God. Listen, if you've lived for any length of time, my assumption is that you have asked the question Asaph is asking in this psalm, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? These are the questions that we wrestle with in our lives. For some of you, it probably keeps you up at night. Maybe you're going through an intense time of suffering. Maybe you're coming out of one. Maybe, maybe you're in one now. And it's causing a lot of angst in your soul and you're wrestling with these questions of our fallen and evil world. And so what I want to do today is, is hopefully bring in some perspective, okay? I can't give you all of the answers because only God has all of the answers, by the way. But I think that that just bringing in these five perspectives on evil and injustice will help us begin to make sense of the suffering that we see around us in our world. So let's work through these together. Okay, number one, we need a proper view of time and justice. Okay, we need a proper view of time and justice. Verse 20 Asaph gives this beautiful uh, picture. It's beautiful in the sense that that it helps us understand, okay? It's, It's as if God is asleep. Okay? He, he's like, God, the wicked are flourishing. They're, they're doing their thing. They're doing whatever they want. And it seems like you're sleeping, God. But verse 20 says, like a dream when one awakes, oh Lord, you rouse yourself. You despise them as phantoms. So God will not delay his justice indefinitely. One day when the time is right and God determines that time, he will execute judgment on the wicked. This is what 2 Peter 3 is talking about. The context here, this often quoted verse, is actually in the context of God's judgment. Where 1 Peter 3, verse 8, 2 Peter 3, 8 says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, 
that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So in other words, we may not understand God's timing, but God's timing is perfect. He works on his own clock and he will execute judgment when he decides to execute judgment. And let me ask you this. What if God delayed judgment just to help us remember how awesome his pardon is? Those who have not experienced pardon are usually the ones who balk at pardon. You see that? So we want justice on the wicked. We want justice and judgment on on those who don't know God. But, but, But what about us? If we've received God's mercy, then shouldn't we be pleased that God is patient? This is what the verses go on to say. God is patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish. So he gives time so that people can come back and see how great he is and get their lives in line with his greatness. But don't be mistaken. Just because we don't see his judgment happening now doesn't mean that he will not be just in all that he does. Number two, not only do we need a proper view of time and justice, we need a proper view of sovereignty. This one may sting a little bit. In our times of suffering, what are we, what are we prone to do? We're all prone to do this, by the way. That's not fair. It's not fair, God. God, you should do something about this, and you should do something about this now. And to be a little more specific, God, you should do something about this now, exactly like I tell you to do something about it. And all of a sudden, we're back in the garden. The first few chapters of the Bible, man's fall was about man wanting to be in the position of God. God will not be commanded by us. Perhaps God allows evil in our world, in part, to remind us of how good he really is. We live in a world that is evil. We are evil ourselves. And so what this should do is it should cause us to long for that which is good, something better, and that something better is God himself. So I am becoming more convinced that that when charges are leveled against God in our times of suffering, they're actually, don't miss this, they're actually implicit affirmations of his power and goodness. Why do we go to God and complain about God doing something about it? Because we know deep down in our hearts, even though we suppress the truth, that God is both powerful and good. So remember that in your time of suffering and in the time of those who may be suffering around you. Number three, we need a proper view of God's care. We're tempted to doubt God's care. Sometimes we even believe that God takes some kind of uh, uh, really twisted delight in our suffering, but that cannot be further from the truth. This is one thing I love about the life of Christ. Okay, don't miss this. There's this little phrase in Isaiah 53 that describes Jesus as what? He was a man of sorrows. 
I mean, for the longest time of my life, I didn't, I didn't get that. Like, I, you know, everyone has memorized John eleven thirty five, right? Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. You know that one? Okay, so you can, if you have never memorized the verse, hey, there's your shot. Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five. So I kind of got that, you know what I'm saying? Jesus wept, I understood. But I didn't, what, what, what is this man of sorrows? Like, like sorrow defined the life of Christ? Absolutely. And, and, and how could this be? It's because Jesus, being one with the Father, came to reveal who God is. And so if God is essentially good, then Jesus also being essentially good had the capacity to taste the evil and the fallenness of the world in a way that no other human being ever had the capacity to taste. So when Jesus experienced the faintest hint of suffering, it was so foreign to his heart because the only thing in his heart is goodness. And he would weep over our sin. And he would weep over our suffering. And he would weep over our rebellion against God. Not only did Jesus show us that God cares about our suffering, but he actually suffered on our behalf. He died on a cross so that we might not experience the suffering that we would apart from his grace. Number four, we need a proper view of God's plans. So God can and God does work much good out of the evil around us. Tim Keller writes this in The Reason for God. Uh, He says, tucked away within the assertion that the world is filled with pointless evil is the hidden premise, namely that if evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. You got that? So so just because an an, an evil in our suffering, it appears pointless to us, then we assume that that it has to be pointless but we don't see the beginning from the end. And so God can take evil in our life. He can take our suffering and he can work it for good. He does work it for good. From the book of Genesis and the story of Joseph, I don't have time to unpack it today. Just read the last 13 chapters of Genesis and you'll figure it all out, okay? It's all summed up in the verse 20 of chapter 50. What you intended for evil, God meant for good. Joseph, who was sold into slavery, here's the summary, Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, ended up saving his brothers because God caused him to rise in power in Egypt. That's the short story of the life of Joseph. But what about Jesus? From Joseph to Jesus, the most heinous act of injustice in the world was when the truly innocent sufferer, Jesus Christ, was nailed to a Roman cross. And yet God, of course, has worked the greatest good out of that most despicable time of suffering. We see this even in our world today, okay? So, so this, this logic doesn't even hold up, not only in the Bible, but even in our own experience. Just take the Boston Marathon bombing, okay? This is a small example, but it's significant. Someone in that, that crowd who was uh, injured in the bombing, actually when he was hospitalized, then would meet a very caring nurse. And this caring nurse actually turned out to be the woman of his dreams and now is his fiance and they're engaged to be married. And 
that that person would be Jimmy Costello, the son of of Jim and Margaret Costello in our church. So, So God can take what we intend for evil and he can take take it and make it make it good finally we need a proper view of the end of our suffering so so this is what i love about the the biblical narrative and the storyline of the bible god takes our brokenness and ultimately it will give way to healing god takes all that is ugly around us and he can turn it into something very beautiful. God takes our suffering and he says, one day all of your suffering will give way to glory. For I do not consider the present sufferings worth being compared to the glory that is to be revealed. This is what is to come. In the presence of God, in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, all of our suffering will seem light, momentary, and utterly insignificant in comparison to the glory that we will experience one day in the presence of God. And the resurrection, of course, is the down payment on this promise that one day God will eradicate all of our suffering, all of our tears, all of cancer, all of death. He will destroy it all and will usher us in to his presence. And so what happens for Asaph? When he contemplates the evil and the suffering around him, the the prosperity of the wicked, he's driven to despair until he comes and he sees this vision of God, the glory, the holiness, the goodness of God. And, and, And he then, just like Job in the book of Job, he has this language of realization and repentance in verse 21 where he says, my soul was embittered, I was bitter in my soul, I was emotionally distraught, pricked in the heart, But verse 22, here's the confession. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. I was acting like I didn't have any sense at all because I didn't have a clear vision of you, God. This is exactly what Job says in in chapter 42, verses three through six. To summarize it, he says, I uttered what I did not understand. And complaining to God about his suffering, I uttered what I did not understand, but now I see. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So the goodness of God is is brought back into view when we see who he is and see it very clearly. Finally, number three. Verses 23 through 28 will teach us that we should then pursue a deep and abiding experience of the goodness of God. I want to give you three characteristics of this pursuit, okay? Number one, the pursuit begins with desire, okay? The pursuit begins with desire. Verse verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. 
This is the language of desire. This is the language of pursuit. This is the kind of language that if you know God and you are following Christ, it should absolutely reach out and like grab you and pull you into the truth. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I, will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I mean, who's, who's saying that? Who's, who's saying with your life, one thing, just, just one thing. This is, this is the pursuit of my life. This is what I'm chasing after. This is what I'm holding on to. This is what's helping me, driving me in everything. And that pursuit being the pursuit of God. Is God your one thing? You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. 27, 8. So, so do you see what happens here? And this, this informs our praying, okay? Because, because we can't produce this, all right? We can't just manufacture this as, as though, you know, we can just kind of snap our fingers, bam. I mean, this, this, this desire, it's from within us. God has to place this desire in our hearts. When we see him, then, then we, we begin to have these desires for him that we would pursue him as the greatest pursuit in our life. So let me just ask you a simple question. If someone were to observe your life over the next month, from the time you wake up in the morning to the time you hit the pillow at night, would they conclude that God is the greatest pursuit of your life? Would they conclude that God is your summum bonum, your highest good, as Augustine said? We should pray, God, give us a deep and ever-increasing desire for you. Now, this is the beautiful part. When we then desire God, when this pursuit begins with desire, then it leads to satisfaction. Look at verse 26. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And then verse 28, the first part, but for me, it is good to be near God. Do you see what's going on here? This is the language of satisfaction. God, you are my portion. In other words, you are what I need. You are enough. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. So when we truly see the goodness of God, we come to understand we don't have to look elsewhere. This is the essence of sin, by the way. The essence of sin is unbelief, okay? And, and we, when, when, we, when we allow unbelief to creep into our lives, what we're doing is we're doubting that God is good and what he has said is what is best for us. And so then we go and we look elsewhere to fill what we believe will satisfy us when the only one who will satisfy us is God. So if you want to learn how to fight sin and idolatry and unbelief, here it is in one word, okay? It's just one simple word, better, okay? B-E-T-T-E-R, better. God is better. Whatever pursuit that may be driving you, whatever pursuit that becomes an idol in your life, you just put the word in its place, 
God is better. Money, sex, power, God is better. He's the greatest good. Approval, comfort, achievement, God is better. TV, the internet, the patriots. God is better. You can tell Bobby Kraft and Billy Belichick that I said so, all right? So, so, so our desires do not ultimately satisfy us because our desires are too weak. This is why the rich and the famous, they accumulate loads of wealth and they look back on their life and they find emptiness and meaninglessness. G.K. Chesterton penned our culture when he said, meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain, but meaninglessness comes from being weary of pleasure. We have overindulged and we find ourselves wanting. And so do you remember last week how we talked about idolatry is anything that usurps the, the, the rightful place of God in our lives. It's anything that, that steals away from our ultimate affection going toward God. And so what, what happens then is that we need to order our loves, okay? So, so God is the highest love in our life, and then all other lesser loves serve the purpose to push us to a greater love for God. Do you see that? So, so we can talk about friendship. Uh, when, I, when I take delight in being a good friend and receiving true friendship, it should accelerate my affection for God. When I love my wife and children properly, it should push me to love God in a greater way. When we sing, play, write, read, create, relax, sleep, come to church, whatever we do, it should all serve the purpose of pushing us to that one thing, right? And that one thing being our pursuit of God. So this is why Augustine said, he loves thee too little, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. That's deep, so I'm gonna read it again, right? He loves thee, he loves you too little, who loves anything together with you that he loves not for your sake. So Augustine is simply calling us to love God supremely. He's calling us to take all of our other loves, all of our other delights, and let them ascend toward God. This is how we live a one thing kind of life, all right? It doesn't matter if it's your education, if it's designing a good job, if it's chatting over a cup of coffee, enjoying a good meal, watching a ball game. All of these things that we do in our life and our pursuits should push us into a greater delight and a greater pursuit of God. And so the pursuit begins with desire. It brings satisfaction. And then finally, it should culminate in praise. Verses 27 and 8. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. 
So we should praise God with words of adoration because he is worthy, right? We should praise God with words of gratitude because everything in our life ultimately comes from him. We should praise God with words of testimony because he is the one that is working in our life. We are experiencing his goodness and then that goodness then causes us to overflow and to speak of how good and great he is. So do you see the connection between your fellowship with God and telling the story of who God is to others in your life, okay? This is the connection between your fellowship with God and evangelism. So we should, we should be eager to praise God by telling him, telling others of his works. And somebody say, well, you know what, man? I'm not trying to get up in people's faces. You know, people aren't about that these days. Well, well, well that's not what I'm about either, okay? It's, it's not that we have to jump down someone's throat and say, Jesus died for your sin, okay? We can explain how Jesus died for their sin by simply being so full of the goodness and the glory and the greatness of God that we can't help but talk about who he is and what he's done for us. Natural conversation, everyday conversation. I'm not saying don't be bold, don't be, you know, take advantages when God gives us opportunity to share the gospel at any time. But I'm just saying that when we're captured by the greatness and the glory and the goodness of God, this will naturally just flow out of our lives. God is good, and his goodness should be the greatest pursuit of our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us to taste and see that you are good. We pray that you would increase our desire and affections for you. God, we pray that we would pursue you like never before and that that pursuit would overflow into proclaiming how great you are to those around us. And Lord, we pray that our heartbeat would be what Jesus said is true of him, that, that he is the bread of life, that he is the living water. And so that, that, that we would cry out, daily, hourly, moment by moment, the nearness of God is our good. Lord, would you lead us into your heart that we might praise you with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.